0: Hello, listeners. My name is Christian Expo Nielsen. I am Associate Professor of History and Human Security at Oogus University in Denmark. My guest for today's episode is the cultural anthropologist, Andrew Gilbert, who is an assistant professor at the University of Toronto, Mississauga, and senior researcher at the university's ethnography lab. Andrew Gilbert is joining me today from Berlin, where he currently resides. Today, we will be discussing his 2020 book, International Intervention and the Problem of Legitimacy, Encounters in Post-War Bosnia-Herzegovina, published by Cornell University Press. Andrew, welcome to the program. Oh, it's my pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to discussing this book, which raises so many interesting questions about the international presence in Bosnia and Herzegovina, Let us first go back to the origins of this book. I know that you've done incredibly extensive fieldwork in Bosnia and Herzegovina. So how and why did you decide to write this particular book?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And the origins of the book actually go way back um, to when I was doing a a master's degree at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University in the mid-90s. Um, at that time, the, the Bosnian War, the Dayton Agreement, which brought the war to a close, and the post-war international intervention that was to supervise that agreement, all of that, um, all of those things were topics of widespread discussion and debate when I was in this MA program. There was a widespread approach that, that saw post-war Bosnia as a kind of laboratory, where the institutions of the international community would have the widest latitude to transform this formerly socialist and then conflict-ridden country in ways that reflected the emerging then post-Cold War norms of liberal peace, democracy, and an economy organized around capitalist market principles. And I remember back then wondering what all of these grand plans would actually look like on the ground, perhaps mm, skeptical about the confidence with which such far-reaching transformations were being discussed, transformations that would have to be simultaneously political, social, cultural, historical, and so on. And so for me at the time, it became clear that only an anthropological and an ethnographic approach would accommodate my skepticism and satisfy my curiosity. So when it came to doing the research in Bosnia, I was really interested in seeking out those sites or places where international intervention could be observed, where there were regular interactions between those called internationals and those called locals. And at the time, that was the refugee return process. Um, That's, uh, for those of people who don't know, was an incredibly ambitious attempt to make possible and sometimes even compel the return of refugees and displaced persons to their pre-war homes. Um, The international community at that time was particularly interested in what was called minority return, that is, the return of refugees to areas in which they would be an ethnic minority. And so not only was that seen as a way to undermine the power of nationalists and undo some of the effects of the war and the tactics of so-called ethnic cleansing, eventually this process became seen as a vehicle for broader goals of political transformation and th- therefore, Refugee Return drew in all these different international institutions from foreign aid organizations, uh, embassy staff, all the multiple organizations of the UN, the OSCE, NATO peacekeepers. They were all involved in all these different processes in the name of return. And the effort also included a Bosnia-specific institution called the Office of the High Representative which wield extraordinary powers and exercise them to support refugee return, including imposing property legislation, changing the constitution, and removing elected and appointed officials from office. And so what I saw in my field work, right? So once I was able to hit the ground and observe all of these interactions, what I saw in my field work was far more complex than what what was being discussed in most of the scholarship. And this is what I work to capture then in the book, what I call the the open-ended, innovative and unpredictable nature of international intervention that is usually omitted from the kind of ordered representations of the technocratic vision, but also the confident assertions of many critiques. Um, And as I argue in the book then, this is clearest, this open-ended, innovative, unpredictable nature of intervention is clearest when you analyze what I ended up calling intervention encounters. Um, and so in the book, that is the framework um, for for seeking to understand and capture um, and to some degree correct what I felt was a limited view um, of international intervention. I hope that's
0: enough of a kind of opening salvo um, to describe the book. That was indeed quite an opening salvo. And uh... <laughs> I think one of the things that we maybe should mention right away, uh, and you mention it yourself in the book, is that not only were you as a a foreign citizen uh, resident in Bosnia and Herzegovina for a much longer time than many international representatives, but you also importantly speak uh, the uh, local language or languages, uh, obviously language itself being a highly politicized uh, topic in Bosnia-Herzegovina.
1: Yeah, that's right. Um, I was there for the bulk of my fieldwork for about 16 months. Um, and that was preceded by about four months of uh, across two summers and maybe a month worth of follow up uh, research uh, after that period. So yeah, got to spend a lot of time there. And as I say in the book that... Um, that makes a huge difference uh, both in the kind of learning process, but also in terms of forming relationships that were critical to being able to do the, the research itself.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is, is something that uh, that I and others know as well from firsthand experience. Now, obviously, none of us just wake up one morning and write a book uh, because we suddenly thought about this idea. Um, our books are themselves products of the influences that other books and researchers have had on us. So, could you perhaps speak a bit about what uh, 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 books and other researchers inspired you as you worked on this particular book?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question, and um, I was thinking about this. And and if I think about um, so, once it became clear to me that it was the the encounter that I that I needed to focus on that the encounter, which is to say the coming together, the engagement um, of those often called foreigners and those often called Bosnians, um, to see that as a productive space um, where international intervention or whatever is going to come out of international intervention is going to be produced in that encounter. Um, then, then if, So if I think about once I got to that point, um, it was clear that already... I was being kind of influenced by, interestingly enough, um, uh, anthropologists and scholars of colonialism, um, mostly because of their recognition of the complexity of the colonial encounter across difference and across inequality. Um, they were among the first to question the notion of a uniform imposition of social categories and governmental rules and cultural forms And that was really important to me. So I'm thinking here of authors like um, Ann Stoller and Barney Cohn and Gina John Komaroff, among others, Um, was really kind of influential. And this is, you know, again, this is the the anthropology kind of training um, that I had. So it wasn't necessarily other scholars of international intervention or theorists thereof, although I certainly engage with them. It really was those scholars who had... Um, studied and captured the complexity um, of encounters across difference and inequality that really were influential on the conceptualization of the book as a whole. Now, after that, it's hard to point to any particular authors, although certainly, um, again, as a general kind of influence, um, I have been influenced by those scholars and theorists who emphasize the performative nature of social and political life as a basic starting point for social analysis. Um, And this is um, what introduced a basic approach in the book, um, which is to look at how people, first of all, to identify um, contradictions and instabilities and uncertainties that emerge in the intervention encounter, um, and then to look to see how people manage them. So again, um, a general approach. And then once we get into the individual chapters, well, um, it, it's really quite um, it's really quite varied. For the first two chapters of the book, which deal um, very much with uh, circulating uh, mass media representations, I'm drawing upon um, general approaches to publicity by. Um, linguistic anthropologists. But then when we get later on into the book, um, you know, I have a whole chapter about uh, kind of um, humanitarianism. And there I'm relating to and drawing upon um, social theorists and philosophers like Hannah Arendt, um, perhaps unexpectedly for some readers. Um, So yeah, it's harder to kind of pinpoint uh, larger influences because the chapters are in some ways so differentiated. But, uh, but maybe, yeah, maybe I'll leave it at that.
0: I'll certainly raise my hand here and say that uh, I was one of the readers who was surprised to see Hannah Arendt uh, uh, show up <laughs> as I'm much more familiar with her in the context of transitional justice and the right. various philosophical questions related to uh, evil and the commission of atrocities. But um, I was also thinking of another uh, scholar whom you certainly know that uh, given that you're an anthropologist, I couldn't help but wonder what uh, a legendary anthropologist like Joel Halpern uh, Mm. with his studies of uh, Serbian villages in the middle of the 20th century would have made of uh, an anthropologist, a North American anthropologist going to Bosnia and and essentially um, studying uh, not so much the local population, but the local population's interaction with international uh, actors, right? Um, yeah. So that that in itself is is an interesting evolution and a very contingent one. Now you already mentioned the issue of uh, uh, minority returns and introduced that mm. term. Uh, could you explain your choice of the municipalities of Priodor and Sanski Most in northwestern Bosnia, the so-called axis of return for your research?
1: Yeah. So uh, again, you know, when once it became clear that um, what I was really interested in was um, being able to observe over a long period of time, the, the kind of interactions, you know, kind of where the where the international kind of community actually hit the ground in ways that you could you could see and observe and and analyze. Um, well, I started looking around in the early, very early 2000s, looking for where can I do that? Um, where's the best place to do that? And at the time, this refugee return process was really picking up steam and, um, really it was there in that process, um, where the most regular interactions between, again, all these UN bodies, OSCE, OHR, international aid organizations, um, you could really, you could see it, um, on the ground. And so that's what drew me to refugee return. I didn't start out as interested in refugee return, um, but because that was the process where most of those interactions were taking place, that's what I focused on. And the place where that was happening in the most kind of massive scale uh, when I started looking for a field site was in Northwestern Bosnia. Um, and, and in between these neighboring municipalities of Prijador in the uh, Republika Srpska uh, side of 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 Bosnia and Sanski Most in the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina side. And what was fascinating, of course, is that these were neighboring, um, municipalities separated by this so-called inter-entity boundary line. And you had, um, Serbs who had been displaced, um, from Sanski Most, uh, living in Priodor were returning to Sanski Most and Bosnian Muslims who had been, uh, pushed out of Priodor. Um, returning to Priador. And so it was a very interesting kind of microcosm um, of a lot of the complexities and possibilities of international intervention. And it was one that unfolded over years because as, as any uh, you know, um, field worker knows, um, you might identify something as a great place to do field work, um, but that doesn't mean you get to go immediately. You've got a plan and get the funding, et cetera. And then by the time you get there, maybe the thing you were so interested in studying is gone and so um what was so important for me about preador and sanski most in this northwestern area was that refugee return was a process which unfolded over years and so i could really kind of get in there and see it in its kind of full intensity over time
0: yeah and uh, and i think you know the 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 fact that you in a, in, in a kind of almost experimental sense have Uh, let's say X heading back to Y and Y heading back to X is is a really interesting kind of control methodology phenomenon Mm. that that adds a lot to it. Um, uh, And of course, the shared experience of of this entire region, which was particularly ravaged uh, even by Bosnian standards uh, during uh, the war, uh, makes it even more interesting. Um, Moving on, one of your... one of the more fascinating aspects of your book is your analysis of what it means to be quote unquote political both in the eyes of international representatives in bosnia and Herzegovina and also among bosnian citizens can you expand on why this term political has such a particular meaning in bosnia
1: yeah it's a great question and you're absolutely right that that features pretty strongly uh, across a number of chapters and the reason that it does is because the question of the political or or what counts as politics um uh there's a couple of reasons why why that is featured so strongly and the first one is that it's a widespread moral discourse in Bosnia when I was doing my field work so if somebody wanted to criticize or stigmatize certain actions um they would call it political in a negative sense and this is something I think that um many listeners probably will be familiar with in their own kind of context, right? There is a, a way in which to call something political is a negative term. Um, it is to criticize it. Um, and this is true in Bosnia of foreigners as well as Bosnians and Herzegovinians, right? So there was this kind of moral discourse of politics that was common. And so I had to, by virtue of being a good empirical field worker, I had to take account of this but um, the other reason why it features so strongly, uh, which is related to the first, is that international actors of all kinds, but particularly those who called themselves humanitarians, defined their own legitimacy by being non political or apolitical. And it turns out that that was a pretty challenging thing in a context where people were likely to see politics everywhere. And so, as a researcher, there was also an additional challenge, um, which is that scholars often use the term politics to analytically uh, discuss power relationships, right? So you think about the, the politics of state building or the politics of nationalism. And so I had to find a way to account for the local discourse, but as well as the nature of power involved when those local discourses were deployed. And so, um, so kind of unpacking um, the local nature of the discourse, what it did, um, what it revealed about the interactions between foreigners and Bosnians. Um, but then I also had to somehow account for the effects of that on, on the relationships, um, and the, the inequalities of power that emerged. And so, um, it, it probably features the most directly in the chapter on, uh, Humanitarianism, chapter five, in which uh, I really show the great lengths to which people who define themselves as humanitarian had to kind of regularly prove to others that they were not being political. And that was uh, a real challenge um, And that kind of often was a, a an instability uh, that they had to manage in their relationships with a whole variety of others. And so, yeah, that's really kind of where I dig most deeply into that kind of that problematic nature, um, of, of the political.
0: Yeah. And I think it challenges us, uh, not just the scholars, but as, uh, citizens of our own societies also to contemplate what being political and acting politically means, uh, for us, uh, certainly as someone who has spent the most of his life in North America and uh, Northern Europe, um, uh, especially Northern Europe, I would say there's a, much less negative uh, connotation to being political. And I think uh, you mentioned the pejorative notion of it is obviously there because there is a profound lack of trust in elected officials uh, in uh, the former Yugoslavia. And as you raise elsewhere in the book, this creates some interesting paradoxes in the sense that what does it mean when Bosnians profess as some of your informants do that they have in a way more confidence in unelected uh international officials who are flown in versus the people that they in principle themselves voted for right yeah yeah that is an interesting kind of uh observation for sure now um your your third chapter uh and i have to say i i have a thing for uh good chapter titles. Your third chapter has the rather ingenious but also somewhat mysterious title, Doing Things with Ethnicity. Uh, What do you offer the reader with this chapter?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. In fact, you know, in some ways to me this this chapter is um one of the earliest that I wrote because it's it's it deals with a topic that I probably struggled for the longest. um, And that is how to how to write about um, ethnicity and ethno-national identity and difference. And and so, you know, in a social space like post-war Bosnia, where kind of ethno-national discourse saturates, or at least at the time, it's less so now, but at the time it just saturated public discourse and private discourse for that matter. I was really interested in why and how that those sets of ideas about ethnic identity and difference um, were naturalized, how they came to be seen as part of everyday common sense. I knew as a kind of, you know, good social, you know, someone with some good social theory background that um, ideas about identity and difference like ethnicity are not natural phenomenon. They're human fabrications and yet they come to be seen as taken for granted. And this presented me then with a conundrum because uh, ideas about ethnicity were so bound up with the violence of the war and post-war politics, I didn't want to participate in the reproduction of those ideas. And yet as a researcher, I also had to be able to talk about the force of those ideas in Bosnian society, particularly the idea that you know, once you know someone's ethnicity, well then you know uh, about their perspective and a whole range of issues something that is false and yet is also widely accepted. So I asked myself a question, you know, how can I write about ethnicity in a way that denaturalizes it, but at the same time accounts for its force and its seeming ubiquity, right? This idea that it's everywhere. And then that led to a secondary question, um, which of course was about the role that such ideas played uh, in the intervention encounter, right, so that they were very present as well there. So I, I had to be able to 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 be able to write about this in this way, and that's where I think you know Roger Brubaker's um, formulation about about groupness comes in handy. Um, in a kind of well-known article, and then later a, a very long book, um, he notes that I although ideas about ethnicity posit ethnicity as something that pre-exists in the world. Um, In fact, uh, such identity, or what he calls groupness, is an event. There are times when it happens or is relevant, and there are times when it does not happen and is not relevant. He also notes that there's institutions or practices that give life to these categories of ethnic identity. Uh, He calls them ecological niches, um, government bureaucracies, schools. These are the kind of niches in which Those categories take on a life, a social life. And so anyway, I developed an analytic framework, which I was, and I hope I'm successful in in doing this. I developed an analytic framework to account for when groupness happens and when it does not, and the role that ideas about ethnicity played in the interactions between foreigners and Bosnians. And this meant, in part, seeing that people pursued various goals using these ideas. And so that's where the title comes from, doing things with ethnicity. In other words, that people would take these ideas or at least the, the, the premises of these ideas and they would then you know, use them in their everyday lives as they're pursuing certain kinds of things. Um, and this allowed me to account for how the ideas came to be seen as natural and how internationals participated in reproducing them even as they disavowed any role in doing so, which was again this very interesting um, thing for me um, I could I feel like I should stop there. I can talk about this uh, for a long time, but really that was my kind of conundrum being able to kind of talk about these things in ways that didn 't naturalize and reproduce the categories, um, but at the same time could account for the social force and why foreigners for example could could um, see them as as natural ways to understand Bosnian politics and society, um, which for me was a really uh, interesting question.
0: I think it's one of those uh, conundra that, that we all have to deal with when we uh, write about uh, countries, societies like Bosnia and Herzegovina. Uh, and I, I know that I struggle with it constantly. It's very, very difficult when you're writing, for example, about the war in Bosnia and Herzegovina, not at some point, uh, I would say it's almost impossible not at some point to say the Croats did blah, 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 or the Serbs then launched blah, blah, blah. And at the same time, I mean, in a way, if the army of Republika Srpska launched an offensive, then it's acceptable, I think, shorthand even for scholars to say the Bosnian Serbs launched an offensive. Uh, but as Baker and, of course, also another great colleague of ours, Catherine Baker, remind us, in, in their works, um, it's, it's easy to, to slip at the same time, I think you highlight, um, and, uh, uh, that this is not just something, uh, that happens among, uh, international representatives who come to Bosnia-Herzegovina. It's something that the, uh, local population does themselves. Uh, and again, that does not mean it's right, but as Brubaker would say, uh, on the other hand, you can't ignore that it's happening. So, when uh, a Bosniak says that all Croats uh, are doing such and such, or a Serb claims that all Montenegrins are behaving in a certain way, uh, that's of course wrong, as you uh, correctly state. But one also has to deal with the real world consequences of them actually thinking that. And, and as you say, then they are themselves doing things with ethnicity uh, pursuant to those uh, worldviews or or those uh, those sh- mental shortcuts that they make based on prejudices, stereotypes, etc. Now, in the same chapter, you you also talk about double standards in terms of how the foreign staff of intergovernmental organizations or international governmental organizations uh, condemn uh, ethno-national ideology but also themselves appropriate and operate within this ideology. Can you give an example or two either from the book or, or uh, other ones of how you observe this in practice?
1: Yeah. So I would say, um, some of the best descriptions. So the yeah, there's two ways to, there's two pieces to an answer to that. Um, the first one is to first note that, um, part of the way that foreigners would often define themselves as different from Bosnians was to kind of disavow any, any kind of, um, uh, any interest in or, or yeah, participating in this kind of, uh, discourse of ethnic identity and difference, right? So, um, Kim Coles in her book, um, has a, you know, good description about the ways in which people would say, you know, I, I don't see ethnicity, you know, kind of performing this kind of liberal European individualism, right? Like I only see the individual. I don't think in these categories, I'm not going to participate in this kind of, um, you know, this, this kind of, um, Context of the war in which ethnic difference was kind of promoted as the cause of the war in Bosnia, um, so it was a way of kind of performing their difference or or categorize themselves as distinct from Bosnians, um, you know, and and so at the same time, however, they participated in reproducing those ideas all the time, and in the book. Um, Probably my favorite example is a moment where uh, a member of the OSCE is is been asked to meet with the, this um, woman who is part of a returnee uh, organization, and she wants to tell him about a problem that she has observed with one of his interpreters. Right, so he was, you know, as with most of the the foreigners uh, as who were part of the international intervention in Bosnia, he didn't speak, you know. BCS um, and had interpreters, a local interpreter. And she was complaining, saying that she thinks that his interpreter um, was, was uh, in, in some ways passing along information to local political parties about what, what conversations that were happening between the OSCE. And at that time, um, Bosnian Muslim and Bosnian Croat returnees to um, a Serb majority area. And this interpreter, um, she said she thinks that he was, he was passing along information to the mayor of the local town. And he, the, the OSCE um, officer did what I call, he made an interpretive leap He interpreted her complaint to be about the fact that the interpreter was a Serb and that the local mayor was a Serb and therefore she couldn't trust him as a Serb. And when he voiced this, she said, it has nothing to do with whether he's a Serb or not. It's just that he's unprofessional, right? He's not following the rules as he ought to and so i took this as a really interesting moment because he had he had kind of already leapt to a conclusion by by basing you know around these ideas about ethnic sameness and difference she was a bosnian croat the interpreter was a bosnian serb the mayor was a bosnian serb and he was seeing the social interaction um, through the category of, of, or through the lens of the categories of ethnic difference, um, and she kind of resisted that and said, "This isn't what it's what it is at all." And so that's just an example of the kind of routine and daily way in which, although internationals might say, "You know, I don't see difference. You know, I see individuals for who they are," they project those categories onto Bosnian society and make decisions based upon them. And that was a really good example for me of one of those moments where he kind of leapt to a conclusion, even though that was the wrong conclusion.
0: Right. And uh, I think it, it really shows how slippery uh, that slope is. And again, all of the unintended consequences that uh, start to come into play once one slips down that slope. Uh, just for uh, listeners who might not be that familiar with Bosnian Herzegovina, let me just note that BCS is um, an acronym for Bosnian, Croatian, Serbian, which is uh, used by the United Nations and other international organizations as a kind of shorthand for the three recognized languages in Bosnia, Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian, uh, which are whatever their uh, more nationalist adherents might uh, argue uh, otherwise, Uh very much, uh, mutually intelligible. Now, um, at one point, uh, you start in your book to talk about how foreigners permit themselves to be the adjudicators of when it is permissible to, uh, practice or signal a group identity. And when it is on the contrary being allegedly abused for strategic or political purposes, Uh, You also, citing uh, Kimberly Coles, whom you've already mentioned, uh, offer examples of both foreign actors who are very reductionist in assuming groupness through ethnic identity, while others, uh, and I quote, attempted to nullify ethnicity as a salient category, end quote, by studiously ignoring or avoiding learning about the ethnicity of their local interlocutors. In other words, they worked with people who were Bosnian citizens, but basically said, I don't want to know what your ethnicity is. Mm -hmm. So here I'm going to try to challenge you a bit. Doesn't this kind of end up sounding a little bit like you and, and Coles are, are trying to have it both ways. Uh, That is that it's on the one hand uh, you're damned if you're, (laughs) if you do, and you're damned if you don't it's wrong to ignore ethnicity, but also wrong to accept it as a quote unquote fact. What then, uh, a reader of your book might well ask, is the quote-unquote right or correct way of navigating groupness in a society like Bosnia?
1: Yeah, so, and and it's a good question. And, um, you know, it again is one of those tensions or contradictions that I think is really illuminating about, um, you know, living in, acting in, um, in Bosnian society at that time was you know, trying to navigate these things. And of course, foreigners, when they would, you know, regularly kind of perform this, I don't care about ethnicity, uh, don't tell me your identity, or they would, uh, you know, sometimes ridicule others who would, you know, maybe not to their face, but behind their backs, who, who, um, you know, would insist uh, on, on, you know, that there be uh, differences between the Bosnian, Croatian, and Serbian languages. And they would kind of say, ah, oh, we all know that it's the same language and they're just... Exploiting this set of differences, you know, for political ends. So, in other words, this kind of undermining um, claims about ethnic difference um, as being kind of inauthentic or politicized, and yet at the same time, as I said earlier, they are participating regularly in interpreting Bosnian society and politics through the lens of ethnic difference. And so, I would say, as a you know, as an analyst or as a reader trying to figure out, well, how should I approach this question? I think again, I go back to this idea that it's situational, right? You, on the one hand, um, you know, you can see plenty of evidence that there is a real social force to these ideas, um, but you don't have to make the same interpretive leaps uh, uh, that I document in the book. Um, You know, it does take a little bit of practice, but you can become really kind of um, alert to or aware of moments in which it gets used, this kind of discourse or these ideas and moments when it does not. Um, And even when it does happen, if you will, that people use these things, um, uh, you still don't know necessarily what that means. And so you just have to really be alert. Uh, When is it used? When is it not used? Um, What are the effects of its use? Uh, it's not a given fact, but it is a social fact with force. And I there's a, a, a one example I remember being really interested in. I saw a newspaper article when I was doing my research in which um, some returnees, uh, in this case, they were returnees who identified as Serbs, were returning to an area that was identified as a Croat majority area in um, Herzegovina. And there was a newspaper article in which the returnees were complaining about the misappropriation of funds by the local mayor. and it seemed ripe for uh, the article to be about ethnic difference, right? So the, the local Croat mayor was uh, appropriating funds to, that should have been used to support the return of Serbs um, and instead had you know, redirected those funds to something else. And what was and, and this was an article being written um, by a newspaper in a Serb majority area that had a majority of Serbian or Serb readers. So you would think it was like tailor-made for an article to be about kind of, you know, the poor persecuted Serbs in this corrupt majority area. And yet that didn't come out at all in the article. Instead, it was about the corruption of the local mayor and not about his anti, you know, whatever Serbness. and it had people it quoted returnees criticizing the mayor but really only in terms of the, using the idiom of corruption so here's a moment where you would think you know groupness or or the categories of ethnic difference you know it would seem tailor-made for it and yet it wasn't used at all and so that's the kind of moment where you kind of think oh this is interesting why the discourse of corruption and not the discourse of ethnic difference and persecution. Um, and those are the kinds of things you can be alert to, um, because I have a feeling they happen all the time and, but they don't rise to the level of kind of visibility unless we're willing to see them.
0: I think that's a, a, an excellent point. And I, I think we see also, um, uh, in areas like, uh, Sarajevo, sometimes in Luka and Mostar as well, um, that, uh, a particularly younger uh NGO elements that they are basically saying, uh, well, our issue with this politician is not that person's ethnicity. Uh our issue with this politician is that uh he or she has not fulfilled the promises they made. He or she uh is uh ruling over the municipality in a corrupt way, etc. And um at the same time we obviously know that the the fog of ethnicity, one could perhaps call it, uh, is is still very thick and and used often very effectively, uh, and not just by politicians um, to obfuscate uh, perhaps the more pressing issues at hand in in contemporary Bosnia and Herzegovina. Now, um, your book correctly and in many ways uh, throughout the book, in fact emphasizes the fallacies of various foreigners who've worked in Bosnia and Herzegovina over the years. And I, I would I should note that in your concluding uh, chapter, you also uh, draw some connections to, uh, in particular, the international experience in uh, Afghanistan. Could I challenge you to apply that same criticism uh, which you rightly apply to foreigners to the way in which citizens of Bosnia and Herzegovina regard the so-called international community and its members. In particular, would you agree that the local perspective on the international community can also be extremely reductionist uh, and, uh, in essence, regard the international community as some kind of uh, monolith.
1: Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean it's 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 very clear that um uh people work from a knowledge base of a particular kind and when that knowledge base is uh partial, incorrect or um uh or non-existent um then they draw upon certain kinds of things that they hear about and and uh, and then make conclusions based upon that which is just to say that um as you note in the book I I really you know I I want yeah, you know, I want the readers to say you know think about what it is to be uh, you know a of an part member of the international community, quote unquote, arriving into Bosnia for the first time, um, you know, very little about Bosnian, uh, you know, history, uh, culture, maybe just what you've read a bit in the newspapers, you certainly don't speak the language, Um, you might not even be able to read, you know, all the alphabets that the language comes in, and yet you are expected to profoundly have a positive effect on this country. Um, And this produces some real um, challenges. Um, and and much of the book details what those challenges are. At the same time, um, you have you know people who live in Bosnia Herzegovina have their whole lives you know deeply embedded in the local society, and here come these foreigners, and they're trying to make sense of what are they doing here. Um, how do I interpret what they say and what they do? And that, of course, is is um, is going to be very very partial. It's going to depend upon maybe. Um, what they read or hear about in public media, uh, maybe some direct interactions, but it is going to be, of course, also very partial. Um, and of course, stereotypes abound, um, both about internationals and you know how how wealthy they are or how ignorant they are. Um, but also, what I found in my research was a lot of similar kinds of you know national thinking. Um, Which may be a very particularly European thing, right? So they would say, they would first want to figure out, okay, here's a member of the international community, but where are they from? Ah, they're a German. Aha, now I know a thing or two about them. Or, oh, they're a a Swede or they're, you know, a Canadian. And, um, but then the other thing that that got me interested um, was how then people in Bosnian, um, how they saw, or how they kind of approached things that were quote international or the international community as a way to make sense of geopolitics and their place within those geopolitical relationships. Um, and so, you know, they would, they would say, okay, this, this person is, you know, an American, and I know I have some ideas about, you know, American politics and, um, therefore I should approach them in this kind of a way. Cause I know that American politicians Uh, you know, speak this way about Bosnia, you know, so it was really a a kind of a very interesting everyday geopolitics being played out, you know, in Bosnia, um, in these interactions. Um, And, and then the last thing I'll say about this is, and I detail this in the book, the same way in which, um, you know, uh, Bosnians were being seen by foreigners, you know, through the lens of of these ideas about you know ethnicity, which is to say, uh, once I know what um, what what your ethnic identity is, then I can connect you with a bunch of other people who have the same identity and kind of make assumptions based on that. The same thing happened with foreigners, like oh, you're a member of the OHR. Well, now I'm going to associate you with all statements made by people who are with this organization and actually make you responsible for what they say and that to me was a very interesting phenomenon as some you know member of the OHR would say well just because they said that in Sarajevo that's not what i think um and you can't assume that that i'm responsible for what they do there because i'm and you know kind of here and and i'm not connected with that and so just again those kinds of you know stereotyping or or ways in which people would get slotted in into certain um you know, categories and then assumptions be made about them. that was uh something that both Bosnians and foreigners kind of participated in all the time.
0: You had me here while I was listening to your uh, response uh, almost channeling images of uh, both uh, Danis stanovich's Nietzsche uh, Zemja," uh, no man's land, uh, which has such scenes uh including about Germans uh. And also Pierre uh great film Gorivatra, in English it's it's known as uh, the Fuse, um, which also has some uh, very caricaturized, but also uh, I think very recognizable scenes uh, of interaction between international representatives and uh, Bosnians. And I think, as a former employee of of uh, the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, I know it could be frustrating that. Uh, you know, HAG, the Hague, was a catch-all term for anybody associated with the ICTY. And you catch yourself thinking, hey, wait a second, you know, uh, I work for the Office of the Prosecutor. Have you stopped to consider that we may not actually agree with everything that the trial chamber or some other organ of the court um, uh, uh, pronounces? Of course, at the same time, as you say, you know, These are very understandable um, uh, statements from people who, uh, for various reasons, uh, are not able to um, or do not have access to the type of information which would allow them to reach more nuanced assessments of a particular international organization. Now, um, and of course, the language barrier works too, uh, both ways, right? Uh, I mean, uh, a lot of Bosnians, uh, particularly of older generations, uh, are viewing everything through whatever they have available in their own language and are not able to read a lot of the uh, information that international organizations produce. Now, um, uh, in my own experience, uh And rightly so, one of the frequent gripes many Bosnians have had over the years is that many uh, foreign uh, employees in the country can be very patronizing and vastly underestimate the extent to which Yugoslavia was a modern, highly developed, and in many respects effective society prior to the war. Sometimes uh, Bosnians vent this complaint by themselves referring in a very derogatory way to allegedly primitive countries in places like sub-Saharan Africa. But putting aside that particular kind of othering, can you give us some examples from your book or from your field research of how much of what Bosnian society needed after the war um, was actually, in a way, ironically in place prior to the war? Yeah, that's a really
1: you know interesting and important question. And so um, I give different examples in the book of how this works, but perhaps the most prominent one is around the idea of the rule of law. Um, that I give this example in the book where um, returnees um, who identified as Serbs um, in um, Sanski Most, which was a, then a Muslim majority area. Um, would complain about the fact that um, when the municipality had uh, job openings that no Serbs seemed to be hired and they would go to the OSCE who had a local office in this town and complain and say, can you do something about this? And the OSCE would say, well, we certainly can't um, give you, you know, force the municipality to give Serbs jobs, but what we can do is help the local municipality to develop fair hiring practices, and then we can monitor future job announcements to make sure those fair hiring practices are followed. Um, And this was against the, you know, the generalized backdrop that um, somehow the problem was in Bosnian's commitment to the rule of law. Um, and to, you know, something like fair hiring practices that would prevent corruption and other kinds of things. And I show in the book, because I have the wonderful example of research done by Robert Hayden in the 1980s, he wrote a book on Yugoslav worker courts. And um, he did research in the courts themselves. And he said that one category of regular complaint that was dealt with in the worker courts was precisely around the idea of unfair hiring. So in other words, uh, already existing in Yugoslavia in the 80s uh, was a court system that people would bring complaints about unfair hiring. And he noted that often the people who complained um, would win their cases. And in fact, the court would order um, either them to be instated or for the process to be Redone. So, in other words, um, here you had an already existing, uh, you know, kind of uh, functioning and often satisfying way for people to deal, you know, through a kind of rule of law framework uh, with the issue of unfair hiring practices. And so, what became interesting for me was to see or think or wonder why it was that foreigners could. Ignore that, right? How they could come to, you know, fail to be aware of that. And in part, I say it's a generalized ignorance about, you know, Yugoslav history, but even more so, it's because it would probably force them to question what it is they were doing in Bosnia in the first place, right? So, as I mentioned in the book, foreigners um, were not experts uh, in Bosnian history, society, culture, or Yugoslav or regional anything. They were experts in things like the rule of law. Free and fair elections, uh, gender mainstreaming, and uh, for them to recognize that there was already a kind of existing court system that uh, prop perhaps unevenly, but nevertheless to some degree successfully, uh, was functioning before the war would maybe force them to question what it is that they were doing there and what they had to bring or contribute. Um, and, of course, as I show in this example in the book, um, their, their uh, offer to help, uh, you know, develop free and fair hiring practices and monitor those practices um, was uh, largely rejected by Bosnians as, an, as, a, um, as a poor solution to the problem that they had identified. Um, so that's just one example. There's lots of others uh, that we could point to um, about how that kind of ignorance about Bosnian society and, and culture and history, um, you know, really, really led to these kinds of profound kind of misunderstandings. Um, and in ways that usually stigmatize Bosnians um, uh, in in the intervention encounter.
0: No one likes to reinvent a wheel, especially when uh, th- it, it is another group telling you that uh, you don't have a properly functioning wheel and you know pretty well that that you've had one for a while. Although I would have to add and and I was a little bit surprised that this didn't come up in in your book I've seen it in in the work of Elisa Helms and others that I think um, all of that having been said and I agree completely with your with your analysis um, I think experience shows that in some cases the um, understandable um, frustration and reticence on the part of uh, various Bosnian actors, was sometimes, uh, modified or, um, let's say canceled out by, uh, the prospect of generous funding. Right. Um, because, uh, that certainly, uh, not to belabor the wheel metaphor, but that did grease some wheels in, in other necessary respects in, in, a, a poverty afflicted post-war society where unemployment was, uh, at catastrophically high levels. Now, um, uh, turning uh, kind of at the end towards your introduction, um, you state that, and I quote, my aim is thus to first seek an adequate account uh, of international intervention and then explore the critical possibilities that such an account makes possible, end quote. I imagine that this is a question you might want to avoid, and uh, I kind of think that you do actually to some extent avoid it in your book, and perhaps rightly so, but here it comes. What are your actual prescriptions for fixing the deficiencies your book identifies, not only in Bosnia and Herzegovina but also in other societies where we have large-scale international intervention?
1: Yeah, and you know, I you're right that that's a a question that I resist answering in the book, in part because, uh, well, there's a variety of reasons. Often, you know, part of it was just because. uh, it's such a strong feature of of other books that I felt that um, one of those or other studies, one of the kinds of things that I felt in, in the need to write the book was that we actually need better accounts of what is happening in these sites of intervention and not to rush or always be looking at the way things ought to be, but first to get a, a good account of the way they actually are. And to that end, I think my book offers useful guidelines on how that can be done And uh, as you mentioned earlier, at the end of the book, I offer an example of of how to use one of the concepts from the book to understand intervention in Afghanistan. But when it comes to prescriptions, I think we need to proceed with a a real healthy sense of scholarly and political humility before the complexity and open-ended nature of engagements across social and cultural difference. Um, That said, I don't think we can or ought to live in a world without transnational action that responds to the conditions that provoke interventions in the first place, right? Armed conflict continues, natural and mad-made disasters continue, poverty has not gone away, and so on, right? Those are the things that usually provoke provoke or um, demand kind of transnational action um, and intervention. And uh, I would also add that for those of us living in the countries of the global north, our governments and our societies are already involved in these places through the extraction of natural resources, consumption patterns, arm sales, the influence of market forces, histories of colonial relations, migration policy, and so on. Right? There's no innocent external position. There's no neutral position. And so with that being said, Um, I think that one of the things I would say, and these are not very specific prescriptions, they're more general, um, but one thing that I just come back to again and again and again is the point that greater resources does not equal greater expertise or authority or morality. It's often taken that that's the way, you know, that we come in um, to intervene in the situation and we have more resources at our disposal. And that is automatically means that we know what ought to be done and uh, and we know what's right in the situation. And it's just not the case. And so we have to resist this idea that just because uh, one group might have more resources, more money, more at their disposal, that they do not necessarily know Uh, what ought to be done better than those people who are on the ground. Um, So that's the first thing. The second thing is, and this is perhaps a no-brainer at this point after all the discussion that we've had, um, and that is that, you know, what needs to be foregrounded in these moments is the knowledge, experience, and history of those whose lives are at stake, right? And that means, of course, developing the capacities to understand those things. And that might mean accepting that you're at a disadvantage and might need to let someone else lead in certain moments and you have to be willing to dwell outside of your comfort zone. Again, none of these are easy kinds of observations, but I think that they're critical if international interventions going forward are not to repeat the mistakes um, or confront the challenges that are documented not only by me, but by so many others. Um, And maybe the last thing I'll just say is that those who are intervening need to be willing to acknowledge that they may not have the answers in advance, that there are no easy solutions and instead they might need to create something in common that emerges out of the encounter. Even if you do not know in advance what that might be. And even if it might require suspending certain sensibilities. Um, again, someone might you know hear me say that and say, well, that's all a fantasy. That's not the way the world works. But um that is maybe the way the world ought to work if we're not to to have uh, uh, repeat some of these these same problems. So that's kind of that's about as far as I'll go um, in responding to the what is to be done question.
0: Well, you went further than I'd expected, and I also have to say that I think your answers to this difficult question are very uh, well. Uh, grounded in your experience uh, and I can recognize them from my own experience. And and I, I, I agree with, with the suggestions you're coming with. I mean, they also relate obviously to the notion that whether we as international actors are there for 16 months or uh, six years, uh, and you mentioned this from one of your informants in the book, I mean, one day we will leave and they will still be living there. Uh, And that should always be at the forefront of our minds. And I think this collaborative, more mutually respective approach um, where we don't fly in with uh, uh, cookie cutter solutions and where we recognize that just because a society like Yugoslavia uh, or one could take, for example, Ethiopia uh, or other countries around the world, just because they do at one point in time end up in fratricidal warfare and state collapse, uh, we need to avoid what, you know, historians would call teleological perspectives where we read everything as a failure just because it ended that way in the end. Right. Um, and you know, you mentioned the global North, uh, without, um, uh, being, uh, a Cassandra, I would say that, you know, uh, the, the fragile current state of, of, US democracy uh, also has uh, you know, structural components, but would again be an excellent example that if and when things do go wrong, that doesn't me- mean that there's nothing to be salvaged from what came before, right? And I think that's a really important to keep in mind with socialist Yugoslavia and its successor states. Now, um, for my final question, I'd like you to just imagine... Uh, the scenario that a younger colleague uh, contacts you, either comes to your office or or contacts you, for example, over email and asks you, uh, you know, I've read your book. Uh, I find it very inspiring um, as I'm sure they will. Uh, and if you could do more research or see more research along these lines done, and I'm a young researcher who wants to go out into the field and, and And follow up and pursue some of the things that that you've started. What would you like to see explored further?
1: Yeah, so and it's it's funny because to some degree, I would say, um, my immediate response is one that it doesn't even sound like it's something new, right? But um, I do feel like uh, when it comes to the scholarship around international intervention, um, and this is something that I was hoping to push against a bit with my book, um, you find kind of two basic camps. The one camp is the, um, what is that, what I call in the book, the kind of, you know, the success failure paradigm, which is we're going to go in and we're going to evaluate, uh, an intervention context to see, uh, what was intended and what were the outcomes. And if there was failure, why did it fail? And, um, and, and, uh, and, and, there's a lot of that out there, an enormous amount out there, um, and often documenting, um, shortcomings, uh, because it's much easier to, to do that then. And because they're obvious, uh, often and very easy to document and because people will pay you to, to do that because they want to figure out why things aren't working the way that, that, um, some had hoped, and then the other side, the other kind of um, kind of approach to international intervention is a critical one, which um, tends to be more about the politics of certain countries than about what's actually happening on the ground. Right. So, many of the critics of international uh, intervention are not really interested, actually, in what's happening on the ground in any given context. Um, they're much more interested in critiquing the interveners. Um, Uh, on a variety of different grounds. And so um, kind of given that context, what I think would be really useful um, is to actually find examples of interventions that worked, not in the kind of facile sense of, you know, we wanted to, you know, rebuild um, 10 schools and we rebuilt 10 schools, Um, but more along the lines of, you know, are there examples of intervention encounters that didn't suffer from some of the kinds of instabilities um, that I document in the book. Um, because I think what we need as much uh, right now as um, critical perspectives on things that don't work, fail, reproduce, unequ- inequality, et cetera, is we need examples of things that work and, and understanding why they work. How do they avoid the pitfalls that so many people have documented um, and uh, and and what might there be, you know, to to learn from those? Um, is it possible to have an intervention that is more collaborative, less patronizing, um, more more the product of something you know um, that emerges out of the encounter, uh, rather than all these different kind of instabilities and challenges that come from a kind of ignorance and, and patriarchal approach? So I suppose that would be kind of like my my first thing that pops to mind when, when, when asked that question.
0: Well, that would certainly be uh, uh, a, I think, fruitful area of, uh, or path of inquiry, and I think also a challenging one for mm. any young researcher. So let's hope that uh, some uh, listeners uh, or uh, future students will take up uh, the torch and uh, uh, go down that path. Dear listeners, we've been discussing uh, the book International Intervention and the Problem of Legitimacy, Encounters in Post-War Bosnia-Herzegovina with uh, my colleague, the uh, cultural anthropologist Andrew Gilbert. uh, Today, Uh, I encourage you to uh, read the book. It has a lot of interesting insights and is also, I have to say, at times, entertaining in a way one might not expect uh, from such a book in terms of the anecdotes that are um, uh, recounted in the course of the book Uh, and i would also mention here at the end that um, uh, one can also find a bit of entertainment from andrew gilbert in the form of his band fisticuffs bluff which i had uh, the chance to uh, check out uh, while i was preparing for this interview I would in particular encourage you to listen to the song Catholic Dance, which I found uh, to be uh, quite pleasurable listening. So thank you, Andrew, for joining me today for this interview.
1: Oh, it's been a pleasure. And um, yeah, um, I I don't know if I would endorse the same uh, go look for for the Fisticuffs Bluff, but um, if you're a fan of loud, raucous music, it might be entertaining.
0: We all need to uh, vent uh, and get the steam out in in various ways at some point, both uh, internationals and locals, right? So uh, go check it out. And uh, thank you, everyone, for listening today. Goodbye.